Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hey, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. And it is a week to celebrate for two reasons. I got my first shot of the Moderna vaccine this week. Very excited Hell about yeah. That. Woo! Congratulations. It came together very suddenly, and I've been buzzing off of it all week. And also, it's Boomer Takeover Week. You've been posting a lot of reviews on the blog, and I've been excited to be flooded with the content that's how I roll. You know, you won't get anything from me for a while. And then suddenly I'm going to send you eight things at once. And you don't even have everything that I'm currently working on. I have other things in the pipeline. Oh, you love to hear it. Wow. I've been like swimming around in it like Scrooge McDuck. It's making me very happy. <laughs> 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 well, that's a perfect segue because a lot of the things that I have sent you copy on are things that are currently on Tubi. And the past couple of times we talked, we talked about how Cube was on Tubi. And when we talked about Black Orpheus, I said that Tubi was the opposite of uh, the Criterion Collection. And although I stand by that, I do want to go ahead and, and note that I do love to- uh, Tubi for the fact that it not only has no algorithm, but is completely and actively disinterested in gathering my data. It is. <laughs> it sent me a push notification this morning to watch The Nanny Diaries before it disappears from the service. It is forever sending me emails to tell me that they have new selections or they want me to watch something before it disappears. And it's always like four films in a quadrant that's like Devious Maids, Little Nicky, Daddy Daycare, and like a third tier studio direct-to-video animated movie with a title like Jungle Shuffle or Ribbit, right? (laughs) And there's no good reason that every single time I open the app, it's not being like, hey, you like Degrassi, the next generation. You like Battlestar Galactica. If it knew anything about me, it would be throwing that in my face. I mean, the Congress is on there, and I had to dig so deep to learn that. It showed me Nancy Grace before it showed me the Congress. I just, I want to sing Tubi's praises for a second, but I also want to point out that I think there's something going on and this is my little weird conspiracy theory, is that I have a lot of channels that I pick up that are like antenna-based digital channels here in Austin. And several of them are movie channels. And it does seem like every time there's a new month and those channels get new films, I also see those films appearing on Tubi and other like free resources like your your knockoff Tubi's, like your Dove app, or like things that do channel through the Tubi app, like Shout TV or Con TV, uh, Shout Factory and Con TV, and it's always something that is it can't just be a coincidence, at least as far as I can tell. I mean, nobody has thought about or mentioned the movie Lucky Number Eleven since it came out like fifteen years ago, but suddenly it's both on Tubi. And also on Bounce TV all the time. And I think (laughs) that there's a huge syndication package of films that are being purchased in bulk and put very inexpensively on television. Like, they're not in the public domain, but they must be crazy inexpensive to license. I think that that's where Tubi is getting all of its films from and also everything that's appearing on television. And I, I know that that's not really a conspiracy. That's just capitalism. But it is odd to me, and I was wondering if in your experiences recently accessing Tubi, you guys had any thoughts about that? 
I just know that it is like chaotic to the point where you know there is no curation. Oh, yeah. The way you're describing it to me is like, it's reminding me of digging in those like $5 DVD bins, like maybe yes. about a decade ago at like Big Lots and like uh, Target, places like that. And there'd always be those like four packs of like movies that really have nothing to do with each other. It'd be like four urban action classics. And it'd be like the Mac yeah. and like some, <laughs> uh, like, you know, like a good movie like the Mac and then like some other Richard Pryor comedy that had nothing to do with black exploitation. Um, and yeah, it's the same energy. It's just like these like movies that are bought by bulk by some company and then packaged um, together like that. Uh, it's definitely yeah. the same vibe. It's like whenever you would go to Walmart in 2007 and there would be like a two disc DVD set that was like 65 horror films, including Night of the Living Dead, because Night of the Living Dead fell into the public domain so quickly for various strange reasons. And so basically anyone can sell it for no licensing fees so that's always the selling point on those bargain basement uh bargain bin dvds like that but to to your your statement about the lack of curation they do have if you scroll down far enough a list of films that it's highlighting for women's history month and i have to tell you you know you look at it and you're like okay yeah beauty shop with queen latifah i buy that but then it's immediately like monster and every underworld film and cloud <laughs> atlas and some like it hot there's one woman in that yeah there's yeah. a famous historical <laughs> figure I is guess. some like it hot a, a women's history month film so i just <laughs> wanted to sing sing to praises a little bit get my ideas out there into the internet for the other conspiracy theorists who might have noticed the same thing you can at me about this. I I want to believe. Yeah, that's that's all I had to say. Let's, uh, Allie, what have you been watching? I took advantage of having a long weekend this weekend, and I watched some movies with virtual friends. And the first one I watched was A Whisker Away. I was like doing my thing, Googling movies and going on my Netflix and trying to figure out what am I going to watch with a group of people who are kind of downtrodden by the modern world and work and stumbled upon this fantastic uh, Netflix original anime movie that is about a girl who magically transforms into a cat and back, like, at will. And it's very, like, family picture, but it's also, like, the animation's really great, but it's it's pure fluff and whimsy, but it was perfect. Yeah, that definitely sounds like comfort watching, like under a blanket with some tea. Yes, it was perfect. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, one of my friends has been forever asking me when, if I want to watch this movie called Castle Freak. Castle Freak is a Stuart Gordon movie from 1995 and it's about this man who with his family that's been through like some serious trauma has like inherited a castle in italy and there is a freak in the castle of course i'd be really mad if there wasn't <laughs> is, is jeffrey combs in this he is yeah i was yes. just about to okay. say jeffrey combs is in it <laughs> it's effective even though it simultaneously looks like it was made for tv 
but is also too graphic and too much nudity to actually have ever been made for TV. <laughs> like, it's just one of those, like, weird, cheapo horrors that somehow inspired, like, a big conversation with my friends about, like, trauma and, like, family history. And also, why is it so realistically gory and also <laughs> sort of crappy, but kind of good? That's like the full moon special, though, right? Because I've never seen this, but I've seen the trailer for it on other full moon VHS, which is the only reason I know about it. And I like Stuart Gordon when he works with um, Charles Band too. Like his movie Dolls that he did for Full Moon, yeah, has a lot of that same like puppet master and like demonic toys and you know doll man, like all those like Charles Band miniature uh, horror comedies. But like for some reason. That one Stuart Gordon movie is like the best of the batch. Like he did a really good job like making art out of Full Moon's like schlock machine. So yeah, I definitely want to see Castle Freak. That sounds Castle amazing. Freak. It is. It's pretty great. If you're interested, it's currently on Tubi. Full of Moon is. has <laughs> Tubi has the Full Moon collection suddenly for some reason. I noticed last night. Wow. Because I have been lately working on trying to digitize my VHS collection. I started reading some articles about how VHS tapes, especially like people's home movies, are starting to basically demagnetize. Like it is not an eternal medium, you know? And so I've been concerned about my tapes in my VHS collection that I know never got a digital or DVD or Blu-ray release. So I bought like an adapter where I can play my VHS tapes on the VCR and then it like basically creates a video file in my computer so that I can save that and watch it. So like years ago when we did wings of fame for the movie of the month, I know that that was a film that was all but impossible to track down and I have a VHS copy of it. I have a VHS copy of a movie called screams of a winter night with my, which might be a future discussion, a future episode for us. But when I was getting to my full moon tapes, I was like, I don't know if these exist in a digital form. And as it turns out, they do. It's on Tubi. So <laughs> heads up on that. It's also on Shudder in case oh, you, wow. know, you don't want the weird commercial breaks at awkward places. But not not to diss Tubi after we've been singing their praises. But you do have to deal with commercials. Every horror movie could be made scarier by the sudden intrusion of the Charmin bears, you know? <laughs> You never never know what corner they're waiting behind on Tubi, which just kind of enhances the experience. But the third movie that I watched, I watched earlier today, was Another Round, which came out last year. It got a lot of praise because Mads Mikkelsen is in it. I started out really hating it, actually, and disliking the premise, but halfway through it kind kind of won me over. It still just kind of feels like a midlife crisis sort of dude movie. But it's good. I mean, I know the reason I watched it and a lot of people are going to watch it is for Mads Mikkelsen's ballet. And it knows that, you know, you kind of like sit there waiting for it and waiting for it. It waits too late to really pull any of that out, I think. But it works. It's good, I guess. I mean, I just kind of felt like it was all right. And I like Thomas Wittenberg fine as a director. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll like it. But yeah, it just felt like a dad movie a little bit. And then just got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, yeah. which was surprising to me. That doesn't quite seem like an Oscar movie. No, not quite. to like quite. rack up a bunch of awards. 
Hmm. And, and it popped up on Hulu the same day those nominations came out, too. So I don't know. I'm kind of interested in it um, as well. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, um, it's worth watching, but it still just kind of feels like a depressed dad movie. <laughs> if, if, yeah. Yeah. That's not selling me. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, speaking of Mads Mikkelsen, unless you had anything else you wanted to add. Oh, no, no. I was working up for that for, for you. Because I knew. I, <laughs> I knew. thought so, but I didn't want to <laughs> yeah. trip all over it. Yeah. Oh, you're a good friend. <laughs> so, oh, you're welcome. So speaking, <laughs> so, um, speaking of Mads Mikkelsen, I've been doing kind of a deep dive into the Thomas Harris Hannibal Lecter lore in the past week or so, which I know is one of the silliest things that a person could get really into, but I am and I kind of always have been. Except there was a big glaring cinematic blind spot for me, which is that in the year of our Lord, 2021, I had not yet watched the 1991 classic Silence of the Lambs. Had never seen it. It just loomed so large over the 90s that it was one of those movies that you feel like you just absorbed it through pop culture, but I had never actually sat down and watched it. So last Friday, I found it on Canadian Netflix with my VPN, wink, or maybe I watched it on Tubi somewhere. You don't know. <laughs> And I thought it was really great. I really enjoyed it. But by the end of it, what I really wanted to do was rewatch Manhunter. Like, I think that Silence of the Lambs is really praiseworthy. I think that it's got some great performances. I think that it's really well structured and the narrative is interesting. But the direction of it is pretty bland. It's not very interesting. It doesn't really have a sense of style. It's just very workmanlike. And so... That made me want to rewatch my favorite Hannibal Lecter movie, which is Manhunter from 1986, uh, directed by Michael Mann, uh, starring William Peterson as Will Graham. And I also will say that to me, the Red Dragon story, which Manhunter is, uh, people always talk about Silence of the Lambs, but the Red Dragon story to me is the Hannibal Lecter story. It's the one that's gotten the most adaptations because it got the 86 adaptation with Manhunter. It got the post-Hannibal prequel adaptation with Ed Norton, and then also was adapted in the NBC TV series Hannibal as the last half of the third season. So to me, that is the Hannibal Lecter story, right? And I also think that although Mads Mikkelsen is the best Hannibal Lecter, I think that Brian Cox is actually the second best in the sense that I think Anthony Hopkins really plays... Hannibal Lecter is creepy and scary, but he does not play him as someone who, for a moment, you could be around without calling the police. Like, Mads Mikkelsen, <laughs> you get, like, the charm. And Brian Cox, he's so sleazy as Lecter, but in a very real world, just kind of a creep way. Whereas Anthony Hopkins, supposedly his lector is you know a well-respected uh psychiatrist and you know has done these consultations with the fbi and yet i don't for a moment believe he could have ever passed as normal long enough for that to happen if that makes any sense <laughs> so i think he plays him well as like a creepy monster but not as like hannibal the chess master he can't hide behind those uh, supermodel cheekbones the way Mads Mikkelsen can. He doesn't yeah. play Hannibal of the books. He definitely plays like his own Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. And Manhunter, it's also, it's just everything is, everything is just so 
neon. Like the whole movie is just so stylish and so almost garish. And I like that about it. I love just like the neon drenched cigarette filled room, right? The smoke filled room. Even when Will is like watching these videotapes of the families that Francis Dollarhide is stalking, the hotel room is so boring looking. It's the most dull 80s motel that you've ever seen. And yet it still manages to be shot and lit in a way where it just is, you're not bored while watching it. And I think that that's what Manhunter has over the other Hopkins uh, lector adaptations. And I think that the Hannibal show uh, is the only other adaptation to have that sense of style. But of course I couldn't stop there. So I also, uh, if you, (laughs) if you, if you set your VPN to Tokyo, you can find Hannibal, the film Hannibal on Netflix, or maybe it's on Tubi and I'm lying. Wink. You don't know. And (laughs) I remember when that one came out, it got such negative reviews And I remember reading about the ending of the book and getting very upset about it. I don't know if, I mean, spoilers for a book and movie that are over 20 years old now, but in the novel version of Hannibal, he basically gets Clarice on his side and they run away together at the end, which seems bananas to me, but that's like the original author's vision so, huh. but that's apparently part of the reason why Jodie Foster did not return and neither did Jonathan Demme or uh, a couple of others. I did, like I said, I did a real deep dive into the lore. Uh, you know, the guy who played Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs, apparently the person that his character was semi-based on, who was like a real FBI director or deputy director or something, played for him like an audio tape of a teenager being murdered that had been recorded by the murderers and it like shook this actor to the core because this like weirdo from the fbi was like yeah now you know what it's really like in my world like he wanted to like do some enforced method acting of the actor who played jack crawford in silence of the lambs and that guy had nightmares for like the rest of his life apparently so that's inappropriate at the very least but I will say I kind of expected the worst thing about Hannibal to be the lack of Jodie Foster. But I think Julianne Moore actually does really well as Clarice. I generally am opposed to like recasting because it, it kind of breaks the breaks the world for me personally a little. But I think that she actually manages to just about pull it off and as much as anybody else possibly could have. And also the, the Italy plot in that film it makes a lot more sense narratively than the Italy plot in the Hannibal TV show. And the beginning of the third season is basically uh, the book Hannibal adapted to Will Graham instead of Clarice. And it actually made sense in this movie in a way that by that point, the show had gotten so Baroque and Chiarosco or whatever the word is that sometimes I had no idea what was happening anymore from like a narrative <laughs> point of view. But somehow in all of that, I also managed to see a couple of other movies. I watched The Seventh Sign, which is a religious horror thriller from the 80s that I don't recommend. But I remember seeing it maybe in middle school and thinking it was really cool. But I think that that's just because, as I've written about like in our um, in my discussions of rapture movies, 
I was really just raised inside of that ideology. So anything that had like a Bible code in it, I thought was neat. And the seventh sign does have like a Bible code in it, although it's a code in the Torah. Uh, basically, Demi Moore is a woman who is um, carrying a child after a couple of pretty messy miscarriages. She's married to Michael Bean, who is a defense lawyer who is trying to get his client, who is a man with Down syndrome, who killed his parents because they were incestuous. Uh, he's trying to avoid the death penalty for this client. And somehow, if there's also a, uh, I think it's Max von Sydow is in it, or it's, it's one of those great, classic, craggy faced European men who are great and everything. Oh, it's, it's Jurgen Proshnow. It's Jurgen Proshnow, <laughs> uh, who is like a priest that's going around and, try uh, basically collecting clues of the apocalypse and there's uh, another priest who is trying to bring about the second coming because he is the centurion who pierced christ's side during the crucifixion and so was cursed to live forever until the second coming and it has something to do with demi moore's baby and also like the nursery in heaven where souls come from being empty weird yeah it's super weird in the sense that like i think maybe you would find something interesting in it but i don't think it's a very good movie necessarily (laughs) that's never stopped me before yeah i mean (laughs) i i I feel we're at a point where i can make that recommendation to you brandon and you know that it's coming from a place (laughs) of like consideration kindness and and fondness and then the last thing that I watched was an 87 Giallo movie directed by uh, Michelle Suave entitled Stage Fright Aquarius. So Suave was one of Argento's like apprentices, essentially. He did like a lot of second unit and assistant directing work for Argento on like Phenomena and Opera and Suspiria all of the us and later went on to direct the church which i wrote about years ago whenever i was doing the argento project and basically this one is about a stage play about a serial killer who is depicted as like a man in a giant owl head within the play and the lead actress like sprains her ankle and is taken to a nearby hospital where she sees a doctor, but it's actually just a psychiatric hospital. And there's a serial killer who has been apprehended, who's being held at the hospital until it's determined if he is able to stand trial essentially. And so he hides in the back of the car and goes back to the theater with these two women from the play and then kills someone. And you, would think that would be the beginning of like a big slasher movie but the cops show up immediately and they (laughs) (laughs) they are like they take this body away but the director of the play who i think is supposed to be kind of like a, a thumbing of the nose at argento is like okay now we're going to incorporate 
this murder into the play. I told the police that the murdered woman was an actress, even though she was just a wardrobe person. And now we're going to stay all night and we're going to open the play in three days. And we're going to change the plot to be about this real life murder. Right. And this is a like a musical dance extravaganza production that they're putting on. I already mentioned the owl head, but there's also like on the street set, there's a woman who like stands atop the, a building and she plays a saxophone while like a dress her dress just billows around her and the fan this movie is bananas <laughs> sounds great yeah. it, it was delightful uh can't recommend it enough my favorite part was when the cowardly director when being pursued by the killer with a chainsaw straight up throws a woman at him because I really like to think that is what Michelle Suave thinks of Argento after working for him for years. And that tickles my fucking fancy. But yeah, uh, Stage Fright is, <laughs> I think it's, I wait, no, it's not on Tubi. It's on Shudder. But, but it feels like it's on Tubi. It and feels like matters, it could you know? be on, on Tubi. So big recommend from me. But um, what have you been watching, Brandon? I, once again, have been suckered into Oscar fever. I've been giving it to myself, desperately trying to have Oscar fever this year. All the nominations came out last week, and I I watched something like 80 or 90 feature films that were released in 2020, and I had seen, I think, four, maybe fewer, yeah, like four titles that were nominated for Oscars this year, which is wild to me. Like, usually it's about a dozen without having tried, but like... I can't tell if I'm just out of sync with the zeitgeist or there just is no zeitgeist right now. And like I need to like catch back up with what the industry thinks is like important films because I was just like way off track. So what I've been doing is I made a list of like Oscar nominated movies, no matter what category they're in, like best visual effects and that kind of thing I, I counted and just like what's available for free that I would want to watch. I'm not going to push myself to watch Mank or Nomad Land <laughs> because I, I know that I won't like them or at least suspect I won't. But like, what are movies that I would watch but just haven't like pulled the trigger on yet? And I started to realize a couple movies in that the reason I hadn't seen a lot of these is because they're fucking grim and like difficult subject matter. And I guess because of the last year, I just like have not had that in me. And I started with the hard stuff. I, I watched two movies in the best documentary category, uh, which is always like, it's important because it's grim, <laughs> like kind of material Yes. as far as Oscars noms go. But they were both very good. I, I watched one on Amazon Prime, kind of ironically. Uh, it, it's called Time. I'm saying it's ironic because it is a prison abolitionist documentary. Um, mm. And Amazon has deliberately and directly contributed to the police state in the past year. So it's kind of ridiculous that they have this like prison abolitionist stock on there, but they just, they just picked it up at a festival. It's not like they did that on purpose. Time is a new Orleans woman's I think two decades long home movies as she's speaking to her husband in prison. He's been in Angola for a 60 year sentence for a uh, bank robbery they committed together in the late 90s. Uh, she went to jail for three years, and he got sentenced to 60. And she has just been fighting every single day while raising their kids by herself to get him out of jail for the past 20 years. And the movie uses these like home videos and some modern footage shot in black and white 
and sort of like poetically mixes them together and just because they're directly addressing the husband who is not there filling him in on like what their day-to-day life is like most of the time like her and her kids and you watch them like literally grow up the enormity of the amount of time they're missing out on like this like very essential part of their family like really starts to weigh on you especially considering how much time she spends on the phone trying to get like documents processed in this like bureaucratic nightmare for him to get his appeals process going along. And it just is like a lot emotionally. And um, it's also just very good. Like I should have watched it sooner. I just needed like some kind of push to, to get on top of it. And the other one I watched was on Netflix. It was a little more uplifting. It's called Crip Camp. It would be hard to be less uplifting. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. I mean, time does have a happy ending, I will say. Okay. Relatively happy. It's not like you ever forget how fucking unjust the uh, criminal system was to this man. Um, yeah. But Deeply fucked. Crip Camp is like a little more like deliberately uplifting, but it starts at a more grim place. Like it's about just basically how bad public facilities were for people with disabilities in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Yeah. It starts from like that abusive place. And just like how these people were just kind of left to defend. I'm saying people, their children are like left to fend for themselves and like have no support. And they're like thrown in these like dungeon like facilities and like barely clothed or fed. It's really just horrific footage. And then they juxtapose that to this camp called Camp Jeanette that these hippies started down the road from Woodstock in the 70s. And the hippie camp for these kids is like just this open inclusive space. It's a summer camp just for kids with disabilities. And you watch kind of like in time, like tons of just like casual hanging around footage of all these like kids at a camp where they're like not outsiders for the first time in their lives. And they can kind of just have these like normal Mm. conversations that have nothing to do with their disabilities. There's like long conversations about whether or not they should have lasagna for dinner or like uh, there's a crisis where a, um, outbreak of like genital crabs uh breaks out (laughs) among the campers and they all find it very funny because it's like a practical problem they have to deal with together and now they know who's having sex like it kind of is all out in the open in a way they can joke about and then the movie tracks these kids for like decades as they grow up into adults and they all become very essential activists to the disability rights act protests in the 70s and the 80s and up until the 90s it becomes kind of more conventional the more you move away from the camp because the footage stops being like home video stuff and becomes more just like what you would expect to see in like a protest documentary, like a historical footage kind of perspective. But, you know, it it does a really good job of like finding this specific moment in time in this summer camp that it's like this one beautiful moment in these kids' lives and like tracks how that, change can echo and like grow and then like make them into these really powerful confident political activists and that actually like change the world as they grew up it's it's really like an amazing watch and i actually um looking it up right now it is on youtube for free too if you don't have a netflix subscription i don't know how long it'll be up there but i will say that uh that one like is a little tidier than time like time leaves you like infuriated with the system in crip camp kind of ties everything up in a boat. It's like, well, everything's better now for people with disabilities after this like victory we had in the nineties with the disability, American disabilities act 
It's like, oh, not not really. Yeah. I was uh, say, <laughs> sort of. It kind of makes you want to feel better than you should, but uh, it's still definitely worth a watch. Slasher elements is part of the DNA of the film, but it's not the point of the movie, I think is, is kind of what we're, what we're getting at. And it's sort of the lens through which we're telling the story of this woman's experience. But it also is such a perfect fit for it because it is, it is a horror experience. It is a threat. It is violence. It is all of the things that a slasher or a horror movie discusses. The Oscars might be a hot topic right now, as far as just like of the moment discourse. I'd say the Snyder cut has even surpassed it as far as like what people are talking about. But there's this movie that just dropped on Shudder last week that I wish more people were talking about. I'm, I'm looking at my letterbox mutuals and very few people have even reviewed it. I'm, I don't even care if you like it. I just want more people to talk about this movie. It's called Lucky. Uh, it stars Brea Grant, who also is credited as the screenwriter. It is a movie that made kind of the... Um, the festival rounds last year and I've been hearing interesting things about it, but it's just weird to me that it kind of just showed up on streaming with no fanfare. It's a high concept home invasion film. I don't generally like home invasion as a genre, but I think this one does interesting things with it. Mostly it introduces a kind of time loop scenario where the days do continue on the calendar in a linear sense, but the same events happen every day in a supernatural way. Uh, this woman, played by Bria Grant, is a self-help author for like business books, and she has this sort of normal life with her husband, who's a college professor. Everything seems to be relatively stable between them, give or take some like sort of standard marital problems they may be having. They go to bed in their nice suburban home and a man breaks in with a plastic mask, uh, barely concealing his face, but at least obscuring it a little bit and attacks them with a knife trying to kill Brea Grant in particular, uh, her character may. And the husband just sort of shrugs this off. He's like, Oh, this guy's here again. This happens to us every night. This guy always tries to come in and kill you. And she's like, what are you talking about? This is not a normal thing that happens to us. And over time he's proven to be correct. This, Guy breaks in every single night trying to kill Brea Grant and she kills him instead, fights him off, murders him. And then by the time she turns around to like call the police or to like tie him up so he can't get away, he just disappears. And all that's left is like a puddle of blood that she has to clean up. She has a, you know, very reasonable reaction to this where she's just freaked out that someone has broken into her home and tried to murder her. And as it happens, over and over and over again, she never loses that panic. But other people treat it as like a normal everyday thing that she just has to live with and get over. And so the movie kind of plays out as this satire on how women are constantly under attack, or at least are fearful of being attacked because it is a strong possibility at all times. And the more she calls other people for help, whether it's her family or the police or social workers or anyone to like listen to her, there starts to be this like satirical pattern to what happens. People shrug her off. There's all these kind of like empty platitudes. They'll tell her like she's being irrational or crazy or needs to calm down. 
very like misogynistic, like uh, cliche phrases that you'll hear over and over again. The movie is not very subtle about its politics, but it's kind of fun at how on the surface it is. But they also see these like really um, patronizing things to her. Like, oh, you're so lucky that you survived. Yeah. It could have been worse. Or like, oh, you're really brave for going through this. When she's not really lucky or brave, she's just like trying to survive her day. And the same thing, no matter what she does, keeps happening her over and over and over again. Uh, so, you know, it becomes this like larger gender politics satire from there. It's not just that they say that she's lucky to have survived. Everything that she has, they tell her she's lucky to have, including her career, even though she is like a self-made woman who wrote her book and had her career that way. Uh, she talks about how difficult it was. And people are like, yeah, you're so lucky as if it's something that just happened to her rather than something that she took agency in. And they also kind of treat her survival that way too. Yeah. And she's like, no, I worked really hard for this. She gets a, like a really long stump speech about her career in that way. Um, but yeah. it, it is like constantly condescending, especially like the cops are like extremely unhelpful in this film <laughs> and yes. have like no, no means of helping her get through this. Yeah. I mean, and that's such a great critique of actual violence against women is, you know, cops don't, really do anything about it this is an anti-copaganda movie in which at points like the bad advice that is coming from authority figures just is like in harmony they're just singing it it's just a song that they're repeating and no one really believes it at all which was a strange moment that i really enjoyed yeah i almost wish that moment had gone bigger it seemed like it was about to become a big musical number but i guess it's kind of better to be left as like a just sort of absurd joke like i feel like a lot of this movie is funny in a way that might be difficult to latch onto if you're skeptical of what it's doing but i I found it very funny at the expense of like it's punching up like it's punching up at like these systems that are failing this woman and even at her job i think it's it's kind of a little satirical of like the self-help going it alone (laughs) i'm a strong warrior woman in the world mentality like it's a movie that wants solidarity among women that just isn't there in in the way the world's already structured well and the way that narratives are marketed and pushed onto women like i mean the editor explicitly is like yeah they want to publish a book and here are the buzzwords you need to reach these audiences you know it's very much like we want your narrative but use the right words Right. So it's even from what is pushed on to women is like individualism. It's just a problem that we just have to get over. Changing systems? What's that? I don't I don't know. Sounds <laughs> sounds fake. And even when she like breaks through at the end, there's this very surreal sequence in a um parking garage, which is dialing the movie back to where it starts. The first time she gets scared before her home is invaded, it's just her simply like putting her briefcase and a stack of unsold books in her trunk in a parking garage and the fear of like hearing an odd noise or a scream in the background in that garage is what sends her down this like spiral. So at the end of the movie, she goes back to that moment and she has this breakthrough where she decides to help um, one of her friends that she sees in the garage who's also being attacked by their own masked attacker and so the movie pulls out from there to show you that every woman is going through what she's going through by herself without help. And even then, when she has that breakthrough, she decides only to help the person that's immediately in her social circle and not try to 
sort of organized all the women together who were like being attacked all at the same time in the same scenario. It's a very surreal moment, but I think it's one that's like smart in, you know, expanding the politics of what it's trying to say into like a sort of almost global scale. Yeah. And I think it's even calling out her privilege, you know, as a woman who has these things and is a successful woman and she could help others, but she's still like whatever she can do to make her life slightly more comfortable, even if other women are suffering, you know, I think that was also a maybe unintended point, but kind of how it made me feel. She spends a really long time declining assistance from everyone who offers it to her. Everyone who offers her the opportunity to come and stay with them. Anyone who tells her to maybe go stay at a hotel. She spends a really long time deciding that she has to fight whatever it is on her own. And as it turns out, by the time that she does go somewhere else, maybe it wouldn't have helped in the first place. But she didn't even try. It took her a really long time. And by the time that she does go somewhere else, her violence follows her. And it costs her the life of her sister-in-law. And I think that that's also part of the statement that's being made. Um, If you're going to say that there is something to, and I agree, to the fact that she doesn't really take any action to help anyone outside of her immediate social circle, she also is trying to go it alone, like she says in her books, for far longer than she should. And that ultimately bites her in the ass. And we get a glimpse of her um, sister-in-law having the same problems and not being reluctant to talk about them because there's like an intimate scene in a kitchen where there's kind of talking about her issues and she notices a scar on her sister-in-law's shoulder and she refuses to talk about it even though she's going through the same thing. They, they don't have like either the language or like just the social freedom to like discuss the fact that every single day they go through this same traumatic experience. Like it's a, you know, standard matter of fact routine. Yeah. The sister-in-law kind of glitches really more than, more than yeah. is yeah. able to, to have, which I found to be like, if you're trying to find like a straight one-to-one analogy between this film and reality and what its metaphors are that I don't know what that's supposed to represent, but I did like it as part of the sort of obfuscation of what the theme is until it got until it decided to take it extremely explicit that it does help you uh, sort of disguise what is happening if this is just a horror movie where everybody around her is in some kind of like Truman show uh, situation until they make it explicit with the uh, garage scene. Yeah. I like the sort of the audience gaslighting in general. Like it takes you a really long time to get your footing on like what actually is happening in this movie. Right. Um, Even though the scenario of the repeating, time loop of this like same nightly attack happening over and over again like that is a pretty good hook for a horror film you you can sell that pretty quickly but the movie doesn't want to get to the business immediately like it it takes a while to establish its bearings like so you know the full scope of what's going on i don't even think you fully get it to the last shot really interesting enough though just going into it knowing that okay this is going to be like a horror thriller movie And then seeing a woman in some of these situations, like the parking garage scene, like I'm immediately like, oh no, (laughs) you know, the scene where it's just 
empty windows and like hallways and mirrors. It makes you very hyper vigilant as well as an audience, which is, you know, definitely a state of people who have trauma and are working their way through the world. And the music constantly keeps you on edge as well. Like the music's always off kilter and like it's just slightly arrhythmic in a way that like just keeps you on edge the entire time. In a way that I actually found kind of fun. Like, I feel like it's, like, really playful, even though its politics are um, angry. It's a very angry movie, but it's also one that finds amusement in how absurd the world as it is can be. Yeah, I, I watched this with a friend, and she and I were really enjoying it. And there did come a point where she was like, oh, is this all going to be a metaphor about her marriage? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Because this was still early on when the husband had left, but you know, the supernatural element of the man disappearing had already come to the forefront. And whenever I was reminding her that we were going to be recording tonight, she was like, what movie is it? I was like, lucky we watched it together. And she was like, Oh, right. How did that end? And (laughs) I loved watching it. I thought it was really well shot. I thought it was like really thoughtful I loved like the color saturation in the garage and from there forward. And I love Bria Grant, but I remember thinking like, I don't, I don't actually know that I'm going to have a lot to say about it because it's, (laughs) it's politics are very on its sleeves. You know, it's not, it doesn't try to play it too close to the vest. There's not even really too much dissection that can happen because it's like, how do you cut open what's already on display? You know, but I had a very positive experience watching it, but I'm, I have to admit, I am kind of struggling for things to talk about about it. And I was, uh, <laughs> I'm glad that uh, you guys are here with ideas because I was uh, trying to think about it beforehand and I was uh, coming up empty, to be honest. I mean, even the final shot is like, it's not open to interpretation. It's like the movie ends on like a yes, all men kind of like image. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, there's really no ambiguity there, but I don't think that's a problem. Like, I think it's okay for a movie to be unsubtle, especially when it has something like specific to say. But I, I do think it does get away with being abstract in other ways. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I thought the actual like horror of the attack, like the nightly attacked, uh, does work every time it happens, even though, you know, it's a literary device. Like, I was yeah. still on edge every time that man lunged at her with a knife because I just didn't want it to go poorly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it never gets any easier to watch. Yeah, especially when you see after you see a couple people actually die, then the stakes are like really upped. And I feel like crap being like, oh, people should have died earlier in this movie. But I think it would have made it even more frightening knowing that there's this unstoppable man coming every night yeah will kill you i am a little bit puzzled about what bria's character's mindset is at the beginning because there are a lot of implications that this is not the first night that this has happened and when her husband says that for the first time you're like is he just gaslighting her but if but thinking back there are you know she's found broken glass like broken dishes and like a big sharp piece of glass sitting on the coffee table that she's like, huh, that could hurt somebody. And put it back down on the coffee table. Right, just puts it back down. It's sort of <laughs> like it does sort of create a puzzle or the implication of a puzzle that I don't think is solved because it does go in a much more like metaphorical direction. But I'm okay with that in this, you know, film because of 
sort of where its head is at. I know that I have a tendency to be kind of literal minded sometimes, but I didn't need an explanation as to why her sister-in-law behaved almost glitchily. And I didn't need an explanation as to why she's just becoming aware of the repetitiveness of this event, despite having clearly lived through it many times before. I think she like slips into that version of reality after the first time she's in the parking garage and it like kind of literalizes something that, you know, happens in the background of her life every day. Yeah. I kind of feel like the metaphor might even come another layer deep. Like when they say it all started with a parking garage, I think maybe that might've been the place of her initial attack. And then from there, the metaphor of, a man could attack you anytime, any man, late at night. You're not safe in your home. But I'm just going to stick with the really enjoying a movie with politics like these that is just so clear. Like, you cannot misconstrue what this is about. You cannot use this for another narrative. <laughs> That's absolutely true. I did discover something sort of horrifying uh, about shudder while um looking up some details from this movie earlier today you know i i normally watch shutter on my television through like roku uh, so i'm not rarely on their website so like i go on my laptop today to just sort of look at the details of the movie and i notice that every movie on there has a landing page with a comment section oh oh yeah which is oh such no. a mistake <laughs> Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you want to get like really angry very quickly, uh, you can read plenty of people mis willfully misunderstanding the point of this film in the shutter comment section. I do not recommend it though. It is, be- it is a waste of your time. That sounds Thanks. like the the real horror there, <laughs> and and one that underlines the movie's point in a sort of metatextual way. Funnily enough, well, this movie is going to be on there for posterity. I think it's it's counted as a shutter original, even though it's a festival acquisition. So. As long as that app continues to go on, horrifically awful comment sections or not, it will be on there. So I guess like it's, you know, first couple weeks of non-response should not be seen as like some kind of failure. I just wish more people would be talking about it or at least singing its praises. Yeah, I don't I don't think I had anything else to say, I'm, I'm <laughs> afraid. <laughs> I'm just glad you liked it. Yeah, you were saying yeah. that you wanted more people to be watching it and talking about it. And I can definitely say I enjoyed watching it, but I just... I think I'm tapped. I, I just, it's a, it's a movie that's very, um, I don't want to say naked, but it, it's very naked in what its message is. And, uh, I think that that makes it definitely worth watching. It just doesn't leave a lot of, uh, room for interpretation. Yeah. I also want to say for people like me who like, oh, home invasion movie, I better not watch that at all. You did say it was going to be rough, but it was actually, it was, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So it's like, it still has that amount of fun to it. Like you said, it's very funny and the surrealism and the soundtrack and its politics really send it to a place of not necessarily being stressful, just frustrating, but frustrating <laughs> in that, you know, if you've lived the experience, you've lived the experience, you know. A recognizable way. Yeah, in a very recognizable way. It's it's just a uh, women's life. Don't call the cops. That's the lesson learned today. Oh, yeah, <laughs> cops are useless. Yeah, they <laughs> honestly they are. 
And I'm uh, I'm glad we got to talk about it. I'm glad y'all liked it. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to be talking about more movies that I've been uh, wanting someone to talk to about. <laughs> I've been watching um, Bob Balaban's 90s horror movies that he directed, which are fascinating and rarely discussed. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk about Bob Balaban next week on the show. Nice. And um, as I mentioned earlier, Boomer's been writing a lot of reviews on the website this week. So I'll put a link in the show notes um, to your list of reviews so people can check those out. It's been a lot of great stuff. Uh, including a longer piece on Manhunter coming soon. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, not about it being longer. That's that's objectively <laughs> true. But the other things that were nice. Thank you. <laughs> I meant they're like expansions on these. Like I get to hear like short reviews at the start of these episodes, but uh, in the actual written piece, you get to go into it a little more, which is great. Yeah, I try not to duplicate myself too much. So, but I do find that if I want to write about something, I have to write about it before we talk about it on the show. Because if we talk about it, then I don't. I feel like I've kind of like talked out of it so yeah i i think that we will uh, continue to do it this way oh no i'm, I'm eating into our own coffers i'm uh... a <laughs> oh, no. no no it's don't worry i i have already started an essay about stage fright aquarius and i did deliberately keep some of my favorite bits to myself so don't worry and you'll never run out of movies on Tubi, so yeah, <laughs> We're never run out true. of Tubi movies. Tubi is good to you. If you are scrolling through the Women's History Month section of Tubi, I do recommend Passion Fish, which is now uh, able to be found there. Although I will say that with commercials, uh, plan to make it an afternoon. <laughs> plan, plan to give it a lot of time. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to y'all next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye everybody. Bye.